Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Michael Modzaluski. Am I pronouncing that right, Michael? Pretty close. Cool. Okay. And he's the author of five books. He has a very special talent. He's a naturalist and guest speaker with Princess Cruises in Alaska. After living alone in the wilderness in the inside passage of Alaska, studying killer whales and living with the native people, he was chosen as Bachelor of the Month for Alaska Men's Magazine Centerful, keeping his parka on but getting a staple in his navel. Uh, Mr. November received 5,000 letters from women around the world, and that's how he met his wife. Michael has appeared on many national TV shows, including being featured on the Oprah Winfrey Show. He has been chosen Speaker of the Year by Sharing Ideas magazine, and he has traveled the world as a field correspondent for Outdoor Life TV, specializing in adventure travel and wildlife conservation. His first book, Inside Passage, Living with the Killer Whales, Bald Eagles, and Quattle uh, Indians was filmed for PBS TV. Welcome, Michael. How are you today? Very good, Doctor. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so honored. Well, how, how was it that you came about to be a naturalist? Um, it all started with my mother when I was a little boy growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, four or five years old, living in an industrial city. Every night, she would read me to sleep with all the great classics of literature, King Arthur, Grimm's fairy tales. In one night, she read me a book by Jack London, The Call of the Wild. And why that particular book resonated at that young age in that industrial city, but it basically created the blueprint for my entire life because it worked on my subconscious. So my mother said she kept reading to me even when I fell asleep. And it's been proven, if you want to learn a language, let the tape recorder run all night because the subconscious never sleeps like a pilot light in an oven. Okay, so you really have this affinity for nature. Uh, did you take any degrees in it or did you just learn it all on natural, so to speak? 98% uh, of it on natural, as you so wisely said. Yeah, excellent, excellent. There's nothing like learning about nature by living in it. And you lived in, in Alaska on the land and, and, and basically learning about the natural pursuits up there. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I had to roll the dice at that point in my career. I was a freelance journalist and I was, you know, writing magazine stories, newspaper stories, and then I was starving to death in between assignments. And then I got to a point where I wanted to write my first book and I wanted to write it with my heart, not just my head. Well, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Exactly. So, so what, what is your favorite part about nature and what, what are you trying to do with teaching people about it when you're speaking about it? 
Well, like I'm a naturalist with Princess Cruises, it's such an honor for five months every year. And Alaska has such a beauty, whether it's the balance between the ocean and 15,000 foot mountains coming right out of that water, the yin and yang that kind of combines as a healing experience, or whether it's topaz blue ice that cracks off the glaciers 250 feet tall. It, I see people change before my eyes. They come there jaded, tired, maybe they've traveled the world, and Alaska turns them into little kids again. It refreshes them. It hits a reboot button that lights up their soul. Do you still live in Alaska most of the year? Um, I'm there part-time now where I'll go up alone. That's where I get my writing done, a little cabin, a kayak with the killer whales. But I kind of pick my moments. But my main time up there now is from May to, to December, living on a cruise ship and sharing experiences with 3,000, almost 4,000 passengers every week times 20 weeks. What's it like to be on a cruise ship as a, as a person that talks about nature and gets people excited about it? Well, you know, as you know, as you write about in your great book, How to Live a Fantastic Life, life is what we make it. And I tell people that when you hit the cruise ship, you know, enjoy the food, enjoy all the great amenities, but don't forget to open the door or your balcony and go outside. Because what we pass through in Alaska is just so supernatural, beautiful. So it's kind of the balance. In fact, we had a uh, Buddhist monk on a cruise ship a few years ago. And uh, of course, he had an Apple iPhone and he was wearing Air Jordan shoes. You know, so the juxtaposition was kind of funny. And he said, Michael, this place is so amazing. Life is door. Go out the door, see whales, come in the door, go dancing. He says, life is door, go in, go out. And, and, and I'm sure that's the door you open for people, opening the door to the natural pursuits. Yes, and so many people will go home after and they'll send emails that I'm so blessed to get. And they're returning back to a world that's very different from Alaska. And for instance, I was friends with a lady for during a cruise. And then the next Thursday after she's back at work, I get an email. Dear Michael, I'm 50 stories in an insurance building up in Chicago, Illinois. I'm in a cubicle. The windows are hermetically sealed. Artificial light is raining down on me. I'm wearing pantyhose and I want to scream. But what's saving my consciousness is every three seconds, I look at my computer screensaver and I see a topaz blue iceberg. And I say, I was there and I'm already planning to go back again. Yes, and I, I think that's one thing about Alaska is they have the bald eagles and they have so many bald eagles, it's crazy. Like every place you look in the in nature, you see this white thing and this thing that looks like a golf ball. And sure enough, when you put your binoculars on, there's another bald eagle and there are just thousands of them in, in that area. Well, I scold the native Alaskans that live there year round because they look at them as chickens. Because as you said, there's so many bald eagles, they don't even look. But I go, you guys, every one of those eagles is special. They were endangered at one time. And, you know, but growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I never take one bald eagle for granted, you know. And, I, and another thing that is definitely there is the wildlife on the water. I, one day we were in Juno's Harbor, my wife and I, on a cruise. And my wife, we were blessed by a whale that came right to the harbor 
and just swam around the boat all day. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. And that is so fantastic that you had a close by experience like that. Yes. Uh, another thing is the killer whales. Tell us a little bit about those because maybe our, our listeners have not heard much about those. Well, killer whales, or they're sometimes called orca, and orca is actually the more accurate word because they're not really a whale. They're the largest and most intelligent dolphin in the ocean, and they are the top predator in the seven seas. They eat everything. Nothing eats the killer whale, and they can vocalize to each other. <clears throat> they have sonar where they send high-pitched sound out, and uh, when divers are in the water, they never... The orcas, killer whales never attack human beings because they get a sonogram or a sound picture of a cerebral cortex. But whenever I'm diving or snorkeling, just to be sure, I throw my arms out and wave my hands that far from my body because no seal would have appendages that far from its torso. So that's my sort of insurance policy. But they have a swag because they seem to know that they rule the roost out there. Dorsal fin on a male orca killer whale, six feet tall from the back up to the top taper tip. Yes. And, and they hunt in groups, do they not? Yeah, they hunt in groups. And that's why really other whales don't stand a chance because with their sonar vocalization, we call them sea wolves is they hunt in the packs six or eight and one poor whale doesn't have a chance against that many uh, nimble, intelligent dolphins hitting them at once. What about the bears and, and that sort of thing that you see in, when you're out in the wild? Well, I'd say I call it uh, charismatic megafauna. The two animals that people come to Alaska to see, I would say number one would be whales and number 1A would be the big brown bears or the grizzly bears. And what is blessed in a way, a lot of people hit the hiking trails when the salmon are running and the bears are so full and fat from eating the fish that they don't want to eat us. So there aren't that many attacks, knock on wood, thank God, in Alaska. But the main reason is there's so much other food for those bears to eat that they're really not interested in us as prey. Yeah, they'd sooner stay away if they can. Yeah. <laughs> The problem is we are coming into their woods. We're coming into their nature. So sometimes we surprise them. Well, you know, and that's the big thing about human beings in nature is we are so egocentric. We look at everything from our perspective. And, you know, even when Galileo a couple hundred years ago looked through the first telescope and he insisted that our planet was not fixed in place, that the sun did not revolve around us, but vice versa. And for that scientific fact, he was thrown in jail and in prison and made to recant. So that egocentric attitude, I think, pervades human beings, that we are at the center of everything, and the animals in the natural world are subservient to us. When anything, we're actually fellow brethren here on Spaceship Earth. Yes, that's right. So... You know, we, we certainly lived in the same environment. We tried to do it. And what I think has happened, at least in Alaska, if we've been able to keep the natural parts of it natural, I, I think that's, that's one of the keys. That's not happening all over the world. 
Well, Alaska is probably one of the very few places left where nature is more, as you said, and man is less. And a lot of the reason is, is like you probably experienced on your cruise, the port towns that the ships visit are what we call mountain barrier. They are wedged in on a little delta with mountains going straight up around them. So you really can't build on that vertical mountainside. So it keeps the population at a minimum. Like in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, I go to visit my family and every year it grows about 20 miles. Someday LA and Phoenix, I think, are going to meet out there in the desert just because it's flat and constructionable, you know. But Alaska is very challenging geographically, and that keeps the human population low and nature big. Yes. What are your favorite things to do in Alaska when you're going up on a cruise these days? What are your things that you tell everybody to take part in? Well, I always send them out to the glaciers besides what you can see from the ship. And if people are fit, if they're in good shape, one of my favorite things to do is to take them inside the ice into an ice cave. So from a hiking trail, you walk on top of the glacier for a couple hundred yards, then you drop off the edge. And usually there's a few hollow pockets where the edge of the ice meets the rocky land. And Doc, when you go in there, oh my God, the color blue, it's another consciousness. I mean, it paints your soul with elevation. And I've had it like a church experience. People go in there and they cry because they're so overwhelmed by that luminous electric blue color. So that's one of my favorite things to do. If somebody's in shape, but it's very dangerous because in Alaska, danger and beauty go hand in hand. And the danger can lure you to the beauty if you're not careful. Yes. And, and the beauty can, I think what you mean is beauty can lure you to the danger and the danger can catch you. Exactly. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah so, so true. I think that's the, the difficult part is people have to realize that although these things are beautiful, you must realize, you know, if you get close to a bear, it could be a very dangerous thing as well. So you do not want to go up and feed a bear. You do not want to go up and let them eat out of your head, so to speak. Well, what I always tell people, it's the rule of thumb. If the animal is covered by your thumb at a distance, you're, you're safe. That's a good buffer. But if a bear, for instance, is getting bigger than your thumb, then it's time to make plants. Yes. And, and I think people have to realize that, you know, even going to the edge of a cliff, for example, it could be dangerous and it could be something that you could fall apart doing that. So I think people have to realize that uh, although these things are good in a safe chamber with safe things, you have to take the precedent and make sure it's safe for you. Exactly. You know, living on the edge is exciting. There's adrenaline junkies, but I know so many of my friends, mountain climbers, you know, that have pushed it a little bit too far and aren't with us anymore. What's the best time to see Alaska? I mean, you know, May can be still pretty cold. Oh, yeah, September can be cold. What's the best time to see it? When did you guys go? We went last week of July, first week of August. Did you have rain or clear skies? Or It was, you know, in some of the towns, it was pretty rainy. You know, that's the thing about Alaska. It's got a beauty because there's a lot of rain that goes on with it. Well, like the local Alaskans don't mind the rain. They call it food. 
that feeds the forest and keeps the memory green. Liquid sunshine, I believe they call it. Yeah, like catch a can. You probably did. You stop a catch a can. Oh yes, I think it was raining and yeah, always there. It always rains in Ketchikan. Ketchikan averages like 200 inches of rain a year. It's unbelievable. But my favorite time to go is when the salmon are running from late June through September. But then it's usually more rainfall, which helps the fish because it plumps up the streams and rivers. But my absolute favorite, if I had to pick one week, the week after Labor Day weekend, early September, we start to get the northern lights. We usually get Indian summer where we get high pressure, blue skies, a little bit of termination dust, uh, fresh snowfall looks like powdered sugar on the mountain peaks, meaning the termination of summer, a little nip in the air. And to see those northern lights and to have thousands of people on the outer decks at midnight ooing and eyeing like little kids is something special. I live in Edmonton, uh, Canada, and recently we've been getting a fair bit of northern lights because of solar activity. So there's been a lot of northern lights in the last few weeks here. Wonderful. Have you ever yeah, seen the lights? Are... Sorry. Go ahead. Tell me more about your. Have you ever uh, seen the pink or the sort of strawberry red color as well as the green? Or Usually it's just the green. Uh, the right. pink and strawberry red colors are not that easy to see in this neck of the woods. Ah, uh, okay. What's yeah. the coldest you've ever been in Alberta? You know, we probably uh, get maybe even worse than, Alberta, than Alaska because we don't get the moderating effects of the climate of the water and so on. So it can right. get minus 40, I think the lowest minus 50 uh, and on the centigrade scale. So it gets pretty cold. But it's a dry cold. They, they say that. <laughs> well, cold is cold. After a certain amount, you just can't take any more of it, idiot. Did you grow up in Canada? I grew up in Canada, yes. Wonderful. Yeah, we love that country because part of the cruise we stop, we either leave from uh, Vancouver, BC, or one of the cruises out of Seattle, we spend our last night in Victoria, British Columbia, which is absolutely beautiful. Yes, and that, that is a beautiful cruise. It is a beautiful time. If people have not done it, they certainly should take it in, and they should also uh, take in some of it. Tell me a little bit more about your book and what people can expect from your book. Well, my first book was Living on the Island, basically alone for two years, almost dying five times a day. I mean, I had only been camping twice before in my life before I went there. I mean, I had nothing on the resume. and uh, But sometimes when you put yourself in a situation where you're in over your head, you rise to the occasion. But why I'm still alive, I don't know. If, I, if we have nine lives like a cat, I'm a, I have about one left. That's it. <laughs> yeah, the, this book certainly must talk about your indomitable spirits and how you got through those hardships. Well, you know, the Native people came out there when I was there just for a couple months. And I hadn't talked to anybody because I was living in isolation. So a boat hit the beach after some storms that were endless week after week. And four native Kwakutl men that carved the magnificent totem poles came out of the uh, boat and walked toward me. And I opened my mouth, my brain fired a signal in my tongue to say, hi, would you like a cup of coffee? And not speaking out loud to anybody because I was so overwhelmed when I first got there trying to keep myself alive. I went, 
I mean, your tongue is like any other muscle. If you don't use it, your power of speech atrophies. So the natives didn't say a word, but they were eye talking to each other. Like, hey, it's eight o'clock in the morning. This guy's already drunk. We could take this island back without even trying. <laughs> so they came into the house. Long story short, Larry Joseph, who's the chief of the uh, Quakutals, he gave me a challenge. He said, I'll be by in the spring to collect your bones. You're not going to make it out here. Whoa. They walked out of the house and I was shaking with fear in that kitchen chair. But I decided to sort of reverse the psychology and prove to them that even a white guy with no experience could make it in their world. Yes. And that's, you know, I think that's the thing. You remember, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens. Ah, that's so true. You know, and my father was I talked about my mother, you know, teaching me to be a writer by putting the sense of story and the love of language in my ear. My father was this fountain of positive energy. You know, he said the only four letter word I don't want to hear in this house to us kids was can't. You can do anything in life if you work hard enough and put your mind to it. Well, that's important. Well, we're close to our end, uh, Michael. Can you tell people how they can get a copy of your book if they'd like to? Yeah, if they go on Amazon.com, I'd be very thankful and grateful and just type in Inside Passage, those two words, because my long Polish last name is tough to spell. And uh, the book will pop up and uh, I would be very honored if they did read it. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for being our guest today. And thank you for being on our show. And to our listeners, if you like the show, please say you liked it and put some comments down so we can pass this on to others. Thank you for being our guest today, sir. Uh, thank you so much, doctor. Have a good day and keep on your great work. Have a fantastic day. Bye for now. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Leica's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life on Amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day. Fantastic.